Welcome back, y'all, and thanks for joining us on the Woodsman's Perspective podcast. Uh, we're back in the Meat House studio, and, and we're going to do one today that, that we've talked about since we started this this adventure, uh, and that that's setting up a hunting track. That's something that's it's I can't think of anything that's more in in Mitt and Chris's wheelhouse, especially. I've seen them do a lot of these things, and this this should be a really good talk on setting up a hunting track. That's what we're going to do today. Yeah. Um, so when I'm thinking about that, Brent, um, you know, thinking about the first little 40 that I, that I ever bought and, and going on, on to it and, and just being in awe that, number one, I even owned a track. And then once I got through that, starting to think about, all right, I've got a clean white canvas. All right, what can I paint on this thing to, to really meet the objectives that I wanted? And then how could I best accomplish that? And so the first thing that, that I started thinking about is, is, look, what are my, and we, we've talked about this before, but the limiting factors on that track. If, I've, if it's 100% um, pine plantation, maybe I need to include, you know, some food plots or some, some different um, structure, you know, in there that would be, um, wouldn't be a monoculture site. And so thinking about the, the, the limiting factors, not only on your track, but also the neighborhood, if you will. That's right. Using that map, you know, use that phone. Look, look, look what the neighbors doing. Man, doesn't that make use, a difference using now? Feet. Y'all think about nineties, early two thousands. How many? You had blue line maps. Yeah, you didn't topo have maps and blue lines. Right. Imagine having a, a topo in your pocket with That's landowner right. names. Back and, then. and the aerial imagery that we have access That's to right. to now. But uh, the when you start thinking about the, the limiting factors, and you're walking through your track. When I say limiting factors is what's the most limited resource on that track? And if between your track and the neighboring tracks, you see a hole in food, cover, or water, if you can speak to that most limiting one, you're gonna have a competitive advantage on putting deer in the right spot, bringing them in from your neighbors, holding them on your track so they won't go on to your neighbors, the more time they can spend on your track, the, the better it's going to be. Yeah, would you say, so both of y'all have walked a lot of tracks with, with landowners as well as on your own tracks. Would you say if, if the guy listening is hunting a track, he's hunted for 10, 15, 20 years, this is where a good fresh set of eyes will help take somebody else out there to look because do you got, kind of get snow blind on your own track or tunnel vision? Is it hard to see your limiting factor? That happens to me today. Yeah, I mean, especially like you said, Brent, when you've been on a track for 10, 15, your whole life, whatever that is. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you don't know what your limiting factor is, you need somebody else to walk that track. No doubt about it. Is that fair to say? No doubt about it. I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're looking at, you're looking at track. Most time they were already set up. They may have been set up for hay fields. Uh, They may have been set up on you know, had a horse pasture or, or cattle pasture at one time. All those are opportunities. All those opportunities, that's right. But, you know, you whether you inherit or you just hunt it or, or whatever you do or you do buy it, this is the time that you can change it. Just because it's been that way for the last 20 years don't mean it's been right. That's right. The last 20 years. So one thing that I want to, I want to touch on right in the beginning, just to, to because I know – some of my thoughts were, man, some of the things y'all are talking about, those are, those are big expenses. And, man, I just can't, I can't hardly justify spending that kind of money on recreation or, you know, hunting. Well, 
I mean, the, the, the way that trajectory is going with these land values, what we're seeing, and Chris, you can speak to that. When you talk about timber value versus recreational value, all the people, Chris, that are calling you looking for a track to buy, what are they talking about? What are they wanting? Well, they're not calling for pine plantations anymore, I can tell you that. They're, they're looking for good recreation slash hunting tracks with more emphasis on the hunting, the locations. You so know, they want good neighbors. They want. <clears throat> so it used to be what these pines would generate me over a 25, 30 year cycle. Well, now the, the, the fluctuating timber prices are making, are making these land values. If you don't push this recreation, you're losing, you're losing sight and you're losing value of what that track could become. So if we can make our track the best recreational track in that area, we're gonna have an advantage from a from a price per acre, whether we're selling or or you know potentially buying. We need to be able to identify the potential in those tracks from that recreation. See buying. it every day, and, and a lot of these lenders now, these banks are looking at that, and they're saying, hey, these turnkey properties. And when I'm calling a turnkey, this is what this podcast is about. We're gonna to try to make your property turnkey. We're gonna tell you how to set it up. But these turnkey properties are bringing way top more dollar. money, top yeah. dollar, because they're ready to go. Yeah. And the, and the guy that can finally afford or inherits or gets one of these properties or even leases one of these good properties, you know, he, he's been able to enjoy the way this thing is set up and, and, and even put a little more emphasis in it. And, and really, leaseholders, I'm seeing now leaseholders, landowners that can't do this stuff themselves, but they got good leaseholders that has tractors that may have a dozer or may pool in some money they're getting more benefit letting these leaseholders go in and do some of this work, no cost to them, maybe you know, take care of them on some of the hunt stuff, but it's increasing their value. And, and, and I sold one a month ago, uh, helped a lady, and, and she had never been on it in 25 years, but the leaseholders had took such good care of it, bush hogging, roads, keeping everything good, it, it, it brought top dollar. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where that communication, because I would say, you know, I know the hunting clubs that I've been in in the past, I would gladly pay a little bit more money if the landowner would give me some land improvements that would improve my turkey hunting or, yeah. or deer hunting, or um, I would gladly pay a little more in, in my lease to, to fund, you know, some of those projects. Well, so. and even um, we handle, I handle about, I don't know, 18, 19,000 acres of hunting leases of a family that had a bunch of land in, around here in, in different counties in Alabama and Mississippi. And, and those guys are sitting on roads looking down pine thickets. And I just asked them, I said, look, are you, are, would you pay more money per acre if we went ahead and established some food plots? He said, 100%. Every one of them say that. So yeah. when now when we go in and thin one, I've got these landowners, they're, they're, they're listening to what people are saying. I've got these landowners saying, hey, let's put in two food plots, okay, 120 acres. Let's do that to entice that guy, number one, to, Keep on leasing the land, and number two, get you know three or four more dollars an acre, maybe five yeah. more dollars an acre than what yeah. we were getting. Yeah, we, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the the land values and, and the things that we're going to be talking about this morning, how it increases those land values. Um, and so there's one thing about doing it, but there's another thing about documenting and telling that story. And and you know if you have a, a plan from start to finish and you document that with pictures and are able to tell that story, that is added value that you can 
put back into that land. Everybody wants to know when I, every time I, I buy a track or a buddy buys a track, first question I have, what's the, what's the story on that track? Yep, what's I the history that on that? So track? many times yep. you, you buy a house or, yep. or, or a piece of land. What all have you done yeah. to it? Yep. What's the story? Yep. Yeah. What's the story behind That's it? That's right. And so if you have that documented, whether pictures or, or even written in some type of management plan and you can show that and show your trajectory, even if you're not completed in your projects, but if you can hand that off to the next landowner, I'm telling you that that's value. A formal plan. Right. This is where I started. Yep. This is what my goals are. And that's and, and if you keep good records, I mean yeah. if you're a record keeper, keep up what you spend on it because yep. you can expense that, number one, on taxes. But number two is when you sell that track, you can keep up and that helps you on your basis plus it, it lets you know, wow, this is what I've done. Right. And and uh it, it's pretty it's neat. To communicate that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, moving into you know, once we, we, we either buy the track or, all right, I've decided I want to think about my track a little bit differently. Well, one of the first things that, that we all think about is access. And there's a lot of things to talk about access. Um, but one, the biggest one to me is now that I'm a landowner, when I would go look at a property or, or go visit a, a, a buddy's property, I'd be looking at the food plots or the bottomland hardwood. Well, I don't anymore. You know what I'm looking at now? I'm looking at roads and culverts. That's, right. That's what I'm looking at now. And, uh, because <laughs> You're I, all grown up. I'm, I'm telling you, because <laughs> I've seen enough times when you don't have good roads and culverts, that other stuff don't matter. That's right. And and having a good road, and, and you know, we, we go to, you know, what is a good road, Mitt? So we're going to define what we think a good road is yep. because we've looked at so many of them. You know, we, we all, almost every piece of property that I've looked at, it's had timber cut on in the last 100 years, I can tell you. There's none that's not had timber cut on. I'm going to go, I'm going to make a step further in the last 40 years. There's been timber cut somehow, whether it was thin, they cut the pine out of it, they clear cut it. So what we do as, as, as landowners and as, you know, people hunting this stuff is we use the loggers' roads. Well, a lot of times those loggers' roads all right, because I can tell you, I've run many logging crews and run one right now. The first thing they're going to do to a road is cut it down. Push it out. Push it out, yeah. So what happens is every time you cut a track of timber, if you want to know any road you look, say, man, the road's lower than the, than the ground. Well, that's because they pushed it out. It got wet. It rained on them while they were logging. They just push that thing out and keep logging. Guess what? That ain't a road anymore. That's right. That's a ditch. It, it becomes the ditch. Yeah. That's right. And, um, and, and a lot of those, plus most people don't have mechanical equipment to go in and fix these roads. So that's really where we start at a lot of times is old logging roads. Because you think about a logging road will stay in the woods for 30, 35 years because we you, pushed everything out of it. You can see a it. dim logging road you in old tracks. That's right. And most of them was rutted and different things. I mean, that's look, I've never cut a track of timber that didn't rain three times on and most of the time it rains right before you move off of it. So that's what you got, and, and, and that's what we tend to use because loggers tend to put roads on high ridges, you know, spots where they can access the land to cut the timber, but that's really, a lot of times, that's not where we want the roads when we're hunting the For track. Access. Access. That's, that's right. That's right, because it dissects that track through the middle, a lot of times through the middle because what... What loggers want to do is they want to get on those tracks 
and get where they're close so to the a timber. central area where that's they're right. skidding logs that's back right. to a deck. And they work yeah. their self out of that track. A lot of times they'll go to the back and they'll cut and work their self out of the front. So once we get it, so let's just say. You just was, described almost every hunting club road system. <laughs> ain't no question. So <laughs> that's you, th- you that's think about it, and even if it was cut 35 years ago, that road is still there because we've always used it. All right, so what we got to do is, number one, how do we improve that road? Well, you've talked about what a road is not. That's Let's right. talk about what a road is. That's right. That's correct. And and um and and my my I'm a stickler for a crown road. Okay, I just like a road to be dry. Um, we can we can spar back and forth on the width of the road. Now I like a wide road. I like to be able to um, number for two factors. Number one is sunlight to get to the road to keep it dry. Number two is. A road is one of your cheapest food plots you can have. So just just for clarity, what Chris is talking about in, in a road, he's not talking about between the ditches. Chris is talking about when his roads, he's talking about between his ditches maybe 20 feet. That's right. But he's got another 20 or 30 feet outside the ditches that he's calling his, his road system. And that's where that supplemental food plot can go. That's where additional daylight can hit those roads to dry those out. Plenty of room to grab some spoil to put back into the road to crown it up. That's that's a road system, and you we're can, not talking about a two track. No, not talking this, about this a isn't two a two track. track road. But now there are there are don't get hung up on well I I don't have enough land for it to be wide like that. Or I don't want to spend the money. You know, even if you have to use a narrow road, we we use a lot of this. Make sure it's up out of the water level and crowned up and crowned up. So with good and, drainage. And, and what we're sides. talking about, crown, you can kind of see like the county grades roads down the these county roads got ditches on the sides. I mean, you got to have somewhere for that water to go. If you don't, that water's going to sit in the middle of that road. Every time you run this four-wheeler with these snorkel kits and everything else, you're going to rut these roads up. I mean, you're going to tear them to pieces. And and people say, oh, yeah, man, we're using that road. Well, now what you've done is you've destroyed that road. So as, as wet as it gets, the wetter it gets during that year, the worse damage you're going to do that road. And then eventually you're going to have to come in there and bring dirt back in to fix what you've tore up. Yeah. And I see it all the time. Yeah, where well, they start going around the wet spots the, and you make they a do new it. set That's of right. ruts and a whole new drainage issue. Brent, when you were laughing when Chris talked about that snorkel kit, but that farm that I've got over here on the, on the west side of the oh, county. Oh, yeah. You, you remember that. Oh, yeah. The first time I showed my dad that track, we hadn't even bought it yet. We were on the back side of it, and we straddled some of them snorkel kit ruts and sat, sat my Polaris down, st- got stuck right there. And on that muddy walk all the way back, my daddy said, what in the world are you thinking buying this wet mud hole? That's right. Well, I mean, <laughs> uh, um, two months ago, I was showing a guy that really wanted a piece of property. So we went and showed one that a logger had owned. He said, look, now that road's in a little bad shape. So... Thank goodness we was using that guy's ranger. We flipped the ranger in the middle of the road and turned it upside down. It, it made some great Facebook pictures, Boy, but it was terrible. If I mean, you're trying the road to sell that was, track, that right. show was good, doesn't it? Well, it, it, it was it was awful. And I told the guy when I come out, he said, "What do you think?" I said, "I think this is a you know I didn't I probably could have been colorful what I said, but it was we were actually turned it over in the road." There's a lesson there when a logger tells you the road's in bad shape. Yeah, right. That's you better right. listen. That's, that's a warning sign because most time you ask them, Hi, "What's the road like?" Oh, it looks great. So that's when you flip uh, and knock your teeth out. But but access road. locations. Let's let's talk about locations. We I think we can explain what a road. Um, and I'm not saying gravel a road. You don't look. None of us can afford to go gravel every every hunting road. But if you roll that thing up and get some good vegetation on it. 
and and uh, mint crown gallon, it up and crown it up and daylight it. That, yeah. That's that's a that's a good factor. Plus, a lot of road systems I use on my personal place, I tie those roads in with some food plots so I can see down the food plots and I can see down the roads because you think about rut time, turkeys. I mean, we've yeah. killed y'all know because y'all have hunted on my places. We kill we kill as many birds on the road turkey wise as we do in the yeah. woods just because we we've got them laid out and we planned it it's not hard you wouldn't think it is but to plan a good road system you can sit down with aerial photos your phone and you can digitize you can kind of see where you want it and plus like we're going to go back to where we started at walk your track know where your ridges are know where your bottoms are you know don't run your roads through a slough you know, dissect that slough, you know, where you have to cross it, dissect it, put a pipe in, but, you know, know where you're at on your property before you start laying these roads out. It's a little easier to do that if you've owned the track for, for years. And so a brand new track, and Chris, I've seen you do it, you may even hunt it a full season before you do any of this work to understand how the deer are relating to it, understand how you want to access it before you make big decisions like, how my access roads gonna come in here? How my interior roads gonna do? Where my where my big food plots gonna go? Maybe you, you hunted a season and learned that track a little better before you make those those real heavy decisions. Well, I'll do that, and I'll tell a lot of things. I'll go back to the leases, the guys that have Get it, information or, uh, there, and ask them. Yeah. Just look, asking somebody that's been hunting it all their life. That's the best information you can get. Mm -hmm. Some people don't want to do it; they want to act like they know everything. But I want to know. I don't know that track. Nobody does till you hunt it a couple years. But I, but people have been hunting. I want to know where there's certain places at places. Uh, you know where the turkeys roosting. Every track's got those hot. Everybody's spots. got those hot spots, and yeah. and they're natural spots. Those deer and turkey and wildlife are going to use certain spots year in year out. Look, I've said a long time. And, I mean, you ever learn a track? You can kill turkeys. Well, you've got it. You've you got want, it. Whooped. Generationally, you those you know turkeys and deer are going to use the property. But Just about where, the same way. Me, I don't want you to talk about location. So in a perfect world, just say you're starting with that blank canvas. You know, I don't want my road right down through the middle of my track. Mm -hmm. Okay? I don't care if you're hunting 40 acres or you're, you're you know, doing 240 acres. Okay? I don't want the road down the middle of it because what I've got to do, I've got to go right through the middle of that track and I'm, I'm looking at pressure, okay? I'm looking strictly hunting, okay? I've got to go through the middle of that track. Just say I've got a food plot on the north end, a food plot on the south end, okay? Mm -hmm. Let's just throw that out there for so people can think about it. So I'm going through the middle of that track, and then just say me and you're hunting. So somebody's got to go through the middle to put the guy in and get in one stand. Somebody's got to go through the other. That's right. Well, what you've done, number one, you've educated those deer. Number two... Whichever the wind direction is, you know, you may have blown out a good deer that was, you know, working the side of that road. You know, if we've done the roads you're talking about, 50, 75-foot roads, good food plots, you know, those deer on the side of those roads, well, we've blown them out. So where I like to put one at, if you can, is down a property line, okay? Not trying to mess the other guy up, but it's, I try to get that road is far enough away from that track so I can have some sanctuary type areas that never get pressured. Right. And okay? it does two things. It does it does that. It keeps the, the, 
the pressure off the interior place and also puts a, a natural, healthy border, if you will, between you and your neighbor. That's right. I mean, it's just a natural transition right there that, that in a lot of cases is a positive thing. And, and really what you could do, and I've seen this happen too, Mitt, and you've seen it, you could have a good road down through the middle of your track, but you only use it when you're carrying equipment in to plant food plots, uh, going to feed, you know, using it to retrieve deer, and then have you some little secondary roads where you do it with a mulcher yeah. or a bush hog that you use just for hunting. Okay. So when we're talking about accessing a track, don't get just focused in on these roads that we're talking about. Accessing tracks is also helps cultivate that culture that we're talking about in our deer herd, that low pressure environment where we can get in and out of the stand without spooking deer. And so that's one of my litmus tests, especially in a rifle uh, situation. If I, if, if I can't have deer in the food plot, and me get in and out of the stand without bumping them, it's not a good stand location for me. I want, I want that, that screening in front of my stands, my access to be able to come through places on my property that aren't real good wildlife habitats. So I won't be encountering deer through that. You know, I've seen you do it a bunch, Chris. You'll come perpendicular to that road system through some bottomland hardwoods that don't have any deer in it. And using those access points in there really keys in on where you may never set foot on one of these access roads that you and I are talking about, right. the crown roads. You may never set foot on one of those. You're accessing those stands through another alter, alternate way that limits your exposure to, to, to deer. And that's really, really changed the, the way that place hunts, the, the, the daylight activity of deer. I mean, that has just changed the, the culture of the track. Right. Well... I can see it. I've got a neighbor on one couple of my tracks. They they love to ride these four wheelers and side by sides, and, and you can hear them. You can hear them coming a mile off. A lot of times they won't get there to three forty five, four o'clock. So I'm already in the stand, but I can hear them coming. And I and there's no question. A lot, especially if I'm hunting fairly close to to where they're coming in, I'm fishing to see deer in the next three to four or five minutes simply because they spooking them coming in there. And, and these guys hunt really well. I mean, they, they, they hunt, they're good hunters, but they, but they access is horrible. So they have to rip through the track. Well, they run and, and, and you know, well, as I do guys, you hunting a four five, six year old deer. He's not gonna tolerate that. He, he's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Or he's going to pattern them. Mm -hmm. How about that? Well, let's, let's say that. He's going to pattern them, and he's going to know. And I want to go back to talk about that culture a little bit, because I've seen some other tracks of yours to where you can drive your ranger through that track, Chris, and the deer don't ever leave the food plot. And so it's really about associating that pressure, if you will, with a, with a positive experience or a negative experience. And if you give them a few negative experiences with that pressure, guess what? They're going to avoid it. But if you don't associate that pressure, because driving trucks or driving rangers through your property is not necessarily a bad thing. No. It couldn't be a positive thing if you're consistent with doing that. That's right. If you do it, it's we've talked about this before, and it's a little bit of a conditioning, That's correct. I guess. You know, instead of yep. pressure, if, if and I liken it to like turkeys. I've always said like a, a turkey may leave a field to be spooked on a vehicle, but it's not necessarily danger. They'll be right back out. But a man walking, 
He's Bible. gone for the day. That that impacts them so much because it is there's an inherent danger mm-hmm. that they've associated. Uh, and, and, and that's with that. right. And 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 deer the same way. And pressure they 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 respond to pressure that same way. And that's a real good point. You can well, condition you, those deer to your interaction in there. You that's think great. about neighborhoods now. You know, urban hunting areas are really popular, and, and deer eating up. Well, deer see people, cars, four wheelers, kids every day, but they get used to them. But but remember what I just said. They see them every day. It's not it, just the fall. It's not just and the fall. Not it's just deer not associated season. with danger. Either. That's right. Yeah. So what I even try to do is I'll go once or twice a week. If I I mean if I just got thirty minutes and ride through my place on my ranger because I feed those deer off of that ranger. I fill up the feeders, do everything, and I ride through it. But I want them to know, hey, I know this sound, but this sound means something could be coming pretty good and nothing's trying to get me. Yeah. And and they do. Let me tell you, deer are very smart. Just like um, I use trough feeders, okay, and me and Mitch back and forth. But when a deer raise, is raised on a trough feeder, when he's five or six years old, he don't have a problem sticking his head under and eating out of it. That's right. He's done it because he's done it since he was a baby. So he's used to that. But so they get used to no us. Disturbance. Yes, they get used to disturbance. And uh, that's so, another thing. The, so thinking about the access of what's something that I've learned for, through having a few tracks and developing a few tracks, you know, early on, my, my tendency was to make every place on the track something usable for the deer, whether it be food or bedding. And the whole track was just every square foot was just something productive. productive. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to change my mind on that now because what I'm learning, there's a a lot of difference between growing or having a big deer and killing a big deer. It's a big difference. Right. And so the way that we access this place and the huntability of a track really determines. I'd almost say access is the difference. Is the difference. That's pressure. Thinking about point. different features of your track when you're setting this up and building these features around existing features that you already have, maybe access through a bottom of a creek. Brent, I've seen you P-Row, paddle a P-Row <laughs> into a stand site where when you get in a stand, you could spit in the boat. I mean, those types of things from, from an accessibility and access standpoint, railroad tracks, walking down a railroad track, falling off the railroad track and getting right in your stand. Those types of features, you get in quiet, make sure that the way you access the prevailing winds in your face and you can set these stands up and be intentional about that. Those little subtle details make big, big differences. Yeah, and and here's a nugget that that I've seen a lot and a lot of leaseholders will see this. Sometimes, and I'm thinking about, about properties I hunt, a lot of the properties I hunt, the only opening is a, is a transmission line right away. And a lot of times that, that will become the road and the food plot, and it is so hard to access because mm-hmm. there's, there's a... Well, they can uh, see the, so much the, down the, it. That edge effect. Yeah. Like you got a power company that's maintaining yeah. that right away. They're spraying and they're cutting, and you get some edge effect thickening on the edge of those yep. things, and that becomes prime bedding. And it's almost impossible. You're blowing it out every time One thing I've learned to do on properties like that is make you an access that's perpendicular, that intersects it where you need to be Mm -hmm. instead of using using the length of that thing. And a lot of times that's the easiest thing to do. And it's it's, it's, it's more difficult to do it this way, but it'll pay off 
accessing that property because deer use those those edge thickets for bedding on those tracks you're going to hear us talk i was was about blowing one out but you're going to hear us talk on all these setting these things up is the wind all of us are big wind hunters i mean we hunt the wind and a lot of people don't realize they hunt because they have available days but if the wind is not right okay if you got a northeast wind it's it's coming out of the northeast and blowing southwest. What about that setlock commercial, Chris? It said forget the wind, just hunt. Right. Well, they well, they're trying to sell that <laughs> ten dollar bottle. That's right. They're yeah. selling pants and they they're selling, selling that ten dollar bottle of spray. Yeah. And, and and you know you may shoot one, but I I can tell you if the wind is not right, and the wind is not right when you access a a field. Brent is a hundred percent right. You're gonna blow them out. You're not. They're gone. Yeah. You won't. You may not even know. And, and, and if you got a good deer that you're hunting and you've got him on camera, and he smells you about three times, don't worry. You're gonna see him again, but he's gonna be on your neighbor. In the back of his in the truck. In the back of your his truck. Tailgate. That's right. Up here at the meat house. I mean, that's. Yeah. I mean, that's just what it is. But you're gonna hear us talk about wind, and and when we're we're talking about wind, when we access. We're gonna talk about wind when we're putting these food plots in. You know, prevailing winds are your success rates. And it's so much easier now. With I'm, I'm telling you, we'll keep going back to it. To and, that phone. And, and that Onyx yes. or whatever. It's a lot we're, of good you know, apps. We're not sponsored by, but but I use Onyx, and you can, you, you've got the direction. You, you've got your orientation. You know where that wind's coming from. You know where you are relative to the bedding area or the whatever you're hunting, whatever pattern you're hunting. And it's just so much easier now just to, to be aware of it and, and know, to use it. A little it. small tool that, that we laugh and Mick gets on me because we start talking about the, the, uh, the, the powder at the pool hall. But that little old little squeeze bottle with that wind checker, with that wind checker yeah. one of the most valuable tools you can have because wind swirl. And you take that little thing and just squirt it and, and see. And then if, it, if, if you know, it goes back to knowing your track, but if you know where that wind's blowing, then you can get into that stand, whichever one you decide to get into. Just just know which way the wind's blowing. What's well, the so, boys from the hunting public use? They're yeah, always pulling milkweed. Out. Yeah, milkweed. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> so going back to you know being intentional about setting these hunting tracks up, um, understanding when you're talking about stand placement and food plot placement, think about the prevailing winds. The, the prevailing winds, one thing, that, and Chris, I've got some tracks – that my access is coming from the west side of the property, it is terrible because that, that west wind is, is when I'm accessing that track, it's blowing my scent all the way across the tracks. Versus if I've got a track that I can access from the east side, the prevailing west wind, it's much more conducive to being able to access that track. And, and so keeping that in mind, some you just dealt with the hand that you got. Well, I know you, you'll use four or five, six different Access points. access points because you say, man, I, I got to go across these tracks or I got to yeah. cross this to get to a stand that you could come in the other way and, and walk right to it. Yeah. And and I've seen you. And even if you, and we're talking about access, I don't care if you go in there with a chainsaw and a weed eater and a bush hog or whatever, these access points are major. And and let's go to food plots and, and setting now, setting those food plots up in the right locations. Just say that we've got a piece of property. There was an old hay field on it. We put a stand. Uh, Branch, you, you you laugh about this. These loading decks. Mm-hmm. There's an old loading deck there. So guess what? We got a shooting house sitting over it, and and we're making it. Is that is that is that loading deck in the right spot? 
Probably who not. knows? I can tell you when that logger put it there, he was not thinking about you accessing that. He wasn't thinking about or, clover or fertility. Or, or any of that. He, he was not thinking about, I'm going to put this load deck here and make sure these guys have a good south wind to get to their stand. Yeah. Good point. You know. So nowadays he said I could burn my pile of death boxes right here. That's right. But what we can do with that loading deck is turn it. You know, maybe maybe go perpendicular east and west with it, so you can hunt a north and south stand. Okay, you have a north and south stand that you can hunt, or uh, prevailing winds because most of the time our winds are coming out of the south or coming out of the north. Yep. And and so making that track, making those food plots, I love to do an east-west food plot. And that, that's just, I, I like them where it's a long lane uh, or, or, you know, what I've got. But if you can set that food plot up running east and west, your available days, okay, just say you work at the steel mill, so you only have a number of days that you can hunt, and that's with anybody. You may only have the weekends. You may only have coming down, you know, during Thanksgiving and Christmas. So being having good available days, because we can't control the weather, okay? But we can control where those stands are sitting at so we can hunt it on a north or south wind. Yeah. I can't help, when, when you start thinking about food plots, my mind immediately goes to association with cover. Food plots and adjacency to cover. Because, and the reason why I'm sensitive to that thought is because I've, I've sat in, in food plots, some beautiful food plots before, but the closest bedding cover was a half a mile. And, you know, by the time, you know. Yeah, we've said that before. Yeah, right. I mean, the deer are halfway to the food plot and you get down going back to the truck. Right. And so when I'm, before I call a food plot really good, I'm going to have to have some adjacent cover that allows those deer to, as soon as they stand up, they're in close proximity to being able to come out. And so when you add that culture that we're talking about with close proximity to cover, that's when you start seeing deer showing up in your food plots at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Right. That's when you start seeing mature bucks walking out in an open field in daylight. Um, and those that combination between culture and close proximity to cover has made probably the biggest impact on my tracks than anything else that I've done bar none. Well, Brent, you know this, and you can you can you know more about it than anybody because a lot of the hunt clubs you use are, are owned by timber companies, so they're steadily clear cutting, thinning, mm. you know, kind of kind of you know kind of give me your idea when you go in and look at a place uh, that cover, and what if the whole place is cover? Okay, what if they you know I, we're gonna throw in what if warehouser comes in and clear cuts three hundred fifty acres of it and sets it out in pine plantation, so now your whole place is cover, okay? So you got cover all the way around you. You still got to know your food plot's got to be in a good location, okay? Your access points That's are right. Good. Then you're really looking at wind and access. Right. That those Because you go back to you, all of a sudden you've changed that limiting factor that you're working around. Now yeah. it's not cover. It's not, it's not my limiting factor. Right. Now it's access and wind and what I, fertility and what I put in that food plot. Um, you just got to be aware, and, and that's a good point. It may be that you, you you zoom out a little bit on on X and you look at what your neighbors got. What's on the adjacent property? So they just we, I'm hunting clear cut now. This is the hand I'm dealt. This is my lease. It's clear cut. I got three or four loading decks I can plant, but the adjacent property, 
you know, there, there's whatever it is, bottomland hardwood, what, there's going to be a difference. So you've got to learn how to hunt around that. But, but yeah, that, that but limiting factor, don't get hung up on that limiting factor is subject to change no doubt. because That's of right. what you do. It's going to be, it is a moving target. Well, land's always changing, whether it's a tornado, cutting timber, new ownership. It, land's always going to change. It's, it's changing. Um, but Mitch, you was talking about earlier before the podcast um, of, of people putting some of this cover in. Yeah. And, and you don't have to put a lot in. I mean, you think about it. I, I laugh all the time. You know, you, you could stack a, you know, a, a deer's not real big when he's laying down. I mean, yeah, and you, look, the you put him thing, in a, thing about cover we were talking about, and I didn't mean to cut you off, but we talked earlier about the cost and, and evaluating the cost and some of these things and the value proposition. To go in, so if you were going to go in and weigh out whether to add food plot or add cover, from an expense standpoint, there's not as much shearing and drainage and other work. It, it's, is it cheaper and easier to manipulate to add cover? than food yeah and so that's and that's a little bit outside the box you know, that's, that's right and so when you're talking about putting food in close proximity to cover you've got two options brent you can either move a food plot create a food plot in close proximity to existing cover or you can create cover in close proximity to existing food that's right and, really and, that's only two and options. where it, and you can orient it with your access, so let's 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 go a step further. If you can't change your access, man, if you can change your cover, you may not have to change your access. Right. You know, so, so what would be interesting to talk about is let's go through some of the the scenarios, the, the scenarios of different land types, and how we could manipulate that cover to be more conducive for deer bedding, turkey nesting, whatever, whatever. The because case a lot of times people don't have a blank canvas. That's right. I mean, they they have you know we talk limit factor, right? So, so we yeah. so what <laughs> do we got to get? Um, you know, just say if it's pine plantation, mitt. We, we've talked about it because you you do a lot of this. If it's pine plantation, we bring a timber crew in and thin it. Okay, I right, we open it up pretty good. You know, Mitch, you send a crew in and you spray or burn to to produce that early succession yeah. that we've talked about so in an earlier podcast. When you say open it up, what and I know exactly what you mean, but what's from a from a scientific standpoint, what's really going on is is sunlight. Sunlight is your resource. Sunlight is your energy that produces everything. And so if you've got a closed canopy, whether it either be a pine stand, a thick pine stand that's intercepting that sunlight, that's where your your energy and your nutrients and your in your water are going. All right, you open up the stand, and then you have a mid-story of some shade-tolerant sweet gums that are in there. Well, guess what? The sunlight's being captured by it now, and it's taking up your water and nutrients. We can eliminate them through herbicide application or fire. Now we're getting the sunlight down to the ground, and that's where we're starting to make the difference. It's all about the sunlight whether we're talking about hardwoods, where we're talking about pine plantations, open fields, it doesn't matter. Sunlight is the key to everything. If we can get sunlight on the ground, then we're starting to grow that, that those preferred forbs, grasses, those native species that can rival anything that we can plant out of a bag from a protein content, digestibility, preference. That's where the magic happens. But, it, but we're also producing that high-quality bed and cover next to that plot that's right you know 
majority of people that I talk to that have hunting tracks, unless they get in a bind, they will not cut their hardwood. They just ain't going to do it. A lot of times they don't have a lot of hardwood. They have draws and drains and SMZs and different little blocks of hardwood. They don't want to cut them. And, and it looks, Man, I think we in the studio with one of them. That's exactly right. But how we offset that, and, and I tell people all the time, is going in and doing these little patch, and we call them a patch clear cut, whether, whether you do it with mechanical or you do it with chemical, or you do it, what we're doing is going in and establishing a small, most of the time they're less than an acre or an acre or two, um, opening in the middle of, of, of some big timber whether it's mature pine or mature hardwood, doesn't matter. Uh, a lot of times it works really good in what I've done is out in some big hardwood bottoms. Okay, you know, you look, everybody's walked in a hardwood bottom. It looks so beautiful. You can see 300 yards up through there. It does look beautiful to us, but it don't. It, it's not what deer like to be in. Now, they roam through it, and you get a picture of them at night or, or during the rut. or if yeah, you don't, if you don't pretty pre- to watch them run through there in the rut. How about this? Everybody's been to Cade's Cove. If you don't pressure them, they'll walk out in the middle of anywhere and let you see them. But, you know, day in and day out. I hate that place. The traffic's too bad. Man, come on. I can't stand that place. Such a hater. But day in and day out, a deer wants to be in thick cover. I think the key is diversity, right? There's a takeaway. You want want to create diversity. But if you had to pick a, and we laugh, but me and Mitt talk about it, if you had to pick a, a habitat that deer love, they love grassy, thick cover. If you can imagine a three-year-old cutover, that's what they that's, want. That's what so they how want. can we produce more of that? And so when you start looking at those cutover opportunities to maintain, and we talk about that early succession, well, think about that early succession is that two- to seven-year cutover. How can we keep that, that, that plant community in that range, whether it be an old field, whether it be you know, cut over, we can do that with some tools, herbicide fire, we can do that. In pine plantation, you can do that. We can thin, we've got herbicide as a tool, we got, well, that, that hardwood um, that you're talking about, that bottom line hardwood, we got none of those tools. And so a lot of times you'll see a guy that going in there and thinning his hardwoods, well, when he puts sunlight in bottomland hardwoods, guess what's coming back? More woody species. More woody species that I've got no tools. I don't have the herbicide arsenal in my, in my tool chest. Fire is not really applicable in hardwoods. I've got no way to manage it. And that's why that option that Chris was talking about is so key. Instead of those, those um, thin hardwoods, let's go to those small, maybe five, seven, ten acre patch clear cuts so if you can imagine in your mind's eye, we've got these checkerboarded throughout that, that, that hardwood that gives turkey nesting, unbelievable bedding habitat. So that checkerboard system can allow us pinches and funnels and ways that we can manipulate and access those, those pinch points for huntability, access, unbelievable cover, and something that we can manage now with fire and herbicide from that early successional type. I watched a timber company. Mitch, you did too. We're not going to say any names, but I watched a timber company next to my place down there. They went through and so-called thinned a whole bottomland hardwood stand. Thinned it. It destroyed the place. Just absolutely destroyed it. it had turkeys, you know. And now, now did it did it get good for deer the first two or three years? Yes. Now it's in about year ten or eleven. 
And just like me, it said it's ten thousand stems per per. That's right. Big as your wrist, ten thousand per acre. And, and not only did it do that, not only did it do that, but it also sprouted those trees. That, it's called an epicormic branch, and I'm not going to get into scientific. But it it put limbs. Sunlight hit those trees, and they started limbing to death. You know, trees a tree's going to grow to its sunlight. So when you sunlight it to death, it's going to shoot. You know, you see a little lot of that hardwoods all on the, the edge of cutovers. That's you right. see those That's oaks exactly right. Draw, yeah. So One thing too, before aggravating it, with a climbing stand. Oh no! Oh, man. That <laughs> limb saw is working overtime, and <laughs> yep. One thing that I want to talk about before we leave there is the the edge effect. And if you've ever been in a climbing deer stand, any piece of woods ever, you see the way the deer navigate and travel these edges, whether it be an edge between a hardwood and a pine stand, an edge between a hardwood and a cutover stand, an open field to hardwoods, those deer travel those edges. And so if you can think, and Brent, you mentioned it earlier, that, that power line that, that power line's mm-hmm. the same thing, yeah, that edge feathering. Right. So anytime I can create a, a transition between two land types, that creates more edge. So that edge feathering you're talking about, imagine you know some, some big bottom land hardwood that I go in there and herbicide or you know some type of mechanical and I've got 40 or 50 feet of down timber transitioned into an open open field. Mm-hmm. Well, instead of one transition, now I've got two transitions. And so when you look at that from a linear standpoint around the edges of those properties, that's two different edges and it's a cumulative effect. And so when you're talking about linear feet of edge, you just doubled that with some edge feathering. And so when you start thinking about that over a 40 or an 80, how many more um, transitions I can create, how much better habitat that is. And so that's something we need to be thinking about when we're setting up these hunting tracks is how can I put more of those transitions, more of that edge feathering, more of that type of habitat in there, that edge effect. Yeah, and that a lot of times you can select some of the less desirable hardwoods. Like you have gum that came up pretty quick, and you and, and you can cut some of those out, and you create that edge, and you create yep. that that sunlight we're talking about on the ground in those woods, yep. and that you get that that cover, that extra layer okay. of cover that's that, right. back yep. in the hardwoods. And that you got my bow hunting hand twitching, talking about You're edges right. and an yeah. edge effect, because that's scouting and hanging stands and bow hunting. That's Yep. Whitetail, or they're just creatures of edges. They're creatures yep. of transition. Right, man. Let's talk about the the, the topography. You know, we're we're jumping, um, but we got to talk about the topography because we go. You hear us a lot talk about drainage. No doubt, drainage on road systems, mm-hmm. drainage of food plots, drainage of your land in general, saving your timber. Yeah, okay, that's access, fertility. That's right. That's value. That that drainage touches everything we so talk about. So the topography, you know, um, kind of kind of. Well, here's that. here's one thing, that, and you taught me this, and you probably didn't even know it when you said it, and I keyed in a long time ago. We were walking through your track, and you started talking about a term, indicator species. And that stuck with me, and, and I'm paying attention real, real close to that as I'm walking through my track. And I've got a, a bottomland track, and so my elevation changes aren't measured in feet. My elevation changes are measured in the inches. And it is so unbelievable how you can walk through those tracks. And speaking of elevation, see those indicator species where I may have a 10 inch elevation change 
and it'll be a solid stand of cedars. I may have a little elevation change to where I have a different hardwood component. It may it move from oak to ash. And so those are the types of things that I'm looking for, not only for access, but also ways that I can manipulate my landscape, habitat. My, my habitat. If I'm going in and doing those patch clear cuts, do I want to take a knob of, of big, pretty white oaks down? Or do I want to patch clear cut uh, uh, some ash and some, some elm? Right. And so those are the opportunities that I'm looking for. And elevation is so, so important when you start keying in on and looking at those indicator species where you can be razor precision and precise about strategically where I want to go do that. Um, you know, a food plot situation. Um, you know, a lot of people want to put their food plots on the ridge tops. Well, that is so not productive when you start thinking about especially summertime things, let's put our bedding on the ridges or the highs and our food in the lows. Well, so when you start thinking about limiting factors for especially summertime food plots, a lot of times it's going to be rainfall or soil moisture. Well, how much better would our food in the summer do if we had them in the bottoms? Well, deer don't like laying in water, so let's put our bedding on those ridge tops. And Chris, I've seen you lay out track after track after track to where you're seeing those, those micro topography changes to where you're putting that bedding on those ridge tops, taking advantage of that those bottom lands, even if the elevation change is not but twelve inches. It yeah, but makes that a twelve big inches gets them out of the water. Yeah, no you got to deer are not going to lay in the water. People think, oh, those deer, they love the water. They love to walk through it. An escape. But they are too. not right. going to lay down in water unless you fire a thirty thirty through them. But they are not <laughs> going to lay in water. They're going to get on a on a small ridge, or they're going to get on a clump of grass. You know, Mitch, you're talking about that the switchgrass, different stuff we plant. You know, it's a lump. They can get up on it. They're going to, they're going to, they got to regulate their temperature. Laying in 30 degrees water is not going to help them. Yeah, and, and people, you, you you think about deer liking water. I think I think that that comes from a lot of tracks. You got the wet areas where you can't manage. They grow up thick, and you get a lot of that early succession you get a lot of that cover where they like to bed they find high spots in that they're not laying in the water and and you made a good point Mitt, about these slight elevation changes making such a difference in species and being able to recognize these indicator species these are things you got to walk a track and be familiar with your track and and be observant when it's raining where the water's standing and, and what's going on because look that topo map those topo lines are 10 feet so you're talking about you know these these elevation changes that make a big difference in how you manage or or you know that that it's not going to result in a topo line on a, on that topo map on on X because every topo line on that map is ten feet of elevation change. I've been with Chris before and it'd be pouring down rain and he'll say come on come on and he'll grab in that toolbox and grab a handful of pin flags and jump in the ranger and run down there to a food plot. Well, what are you doing, Chris? Well, I tell you what he's doing. He's marking where that water's standing in that food plot so we can fix that drainage the next year. Yeah. It's, Those, hard, it's hard to find it when it's all dry. That's I mean, right. you think about it. Mm -hmm. and, and what Mitt, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of define a little bit real quick, but indicator species, if you're walking through a bottom and then all of a sudden you see a, a, a big group of pines, well, guess what? That elevation has changed. Those pine trees are going to be adapted to a little higher ground. And, if, and whether it's 12 inches or 12 feet of elevation change, 
that's the that's the indicator species. Those those species, you know, you got uh, different species are are adapted. drawn, adapted and drawn to certain uh, habitats. So the easiest thing, cypress. When you think about cypress, you don't think about it growing on top of a hill. Mm-hmm. You think about it in a swamp and a creek. Okay, there's no difference in a cedar or a pine. They're going to grow predominantly on higher ground than a water oak, willow oak, swamp chestnut. Okay. So and, the and best it, habitat I've got on my artesia place is where I had those, and it was really, it's really interesting to see on some older aerial imagery where I'll have four and five acre pockets of cedars in the middle of, of a, a big hardwood um, plantation. And what I did is went in there and sheared those cedars. And the cedars, underneath the cedar, especially if you've seen those thick cedar thickets, it's as clean as a gravel road up under them. I mean, it's a biological desert. And so if we can cut those down and and allow sunlight, you've already got that little bit of elevation change because the cedars are there. They're showing you that. That has been the best cover that I've got on my place, bar none. And you think about a cedar and a pine mint, once you cut them off, they're not sprouting back. That's right. So that is a good, and, and, and also you'll hear this from me, the, the, two, the two biggest hoarders of nutrients is a pine tree and a cedar tree. Trees in general hoard. They're going to they're gonna suck up everything they can, whether it's water, nutrients, and everything. So, yeah. uh, and, and you can see that around the edge of a field, Mitch, in soybeans. Mm-hmm. You get these big hardwood on the edge of the field, what's, what's the first 30 feet of it around that field? Yeah. They're nothing. Every time. They're, you know, they're, they're right. two foot smaller than the ones out in the field. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's something to think about. Mitt, there, there's some opportunities. You know, we're talking about money. You, you're, you're a master at that because you're in that agriculture business and, and you got that, you know, you got that management company. There's some cost share opportunities for people doing some of this habitat stuff. Am I right or wrong? Yeah, it, Can you tell is. a little and bit so, on that? You know, depending on how your, your land is, 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 um, associated with CRP versus not. There's some opportunities, and to, to know that, um, it, it's very unique per property with your opportunities, but there's a lot of cost share to be had to do some of the management practices that we've been talking about today. Um, you know, some of the edge feathering, widen the roads out, pre-commercial thins, a lot of those big heavy lifts, there's some opportunities with equip, CRP, cost share, um, mid-contract management, herbicide applications, prescribed fire. Um, you can get a lot of assistance there if you know where to go. Um, we'd be happy to visit with you about that. Just get, get in touch with us. When they're paying people to thin pines, yeah. there are some, you know, there's some demands. Some opportunities. Some opportunities that people can get just by signing up, not knowing. Yeah, but inversely, so this isn't direct to what you do, but it can be an offset. There's also some carbon storage things for trees you don't cut. That's right. So there's an opportunity to, to create an income over here to offset some of this if you want to do some management in another area. That's so right. There's always, you just got to think, you got to get creative sometimes and really think. And, and it goes back to just like I said in the beginning about we kind of get, you kind of get snow blind or tunnel vision on your own property. The same thing is with some of these programs. If a fresh set of eyes sometimes or somebody that deals with it all the time could really pay dividends. Flip a switch. That's right. Give you another way to look at it. Yep. If anybody caught anything out of this, access, number one, you know, on a track, uh, the way we access it, food plots. You know, we've talked about that. Everybody likes that. And, and just 
the uh, but the land values don't get talked about much. Yeah. And in a lot of things that we do, and a lot of these these uh, forestry association meetings and stuff that we've done, we're showing people, hey, the money you put in it, you're going to get it back out. We can't ignore the recreational value no, anymore. No. I mean, it's not just a it's not a side fringe benefit That's anymore. Right. It, it's serious and <clears throat> serious money. You know, back when we were coming up, Chris, the the land had to support itself. The resources of the land, whether you farmed it, it was timber, cattle, the resources that you had on that land is what allowed you to buy that it's land. It's tangible resources. That's right. That, well, that's changing. Yeah. Now it's it's money from town in our eight to five occupation that's buying the land. That's, that's and so that's why that recreational value oftentimes we're seeing supersede the opportunities that we have maybe with the resources on the well it's a lot of people that didn't grow up country well and it's indicative of a culture shift right there's a culture shift and 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 this is a a really good opportunity to leverage that and and at least be be intentional about it Um, well and, and don't think you have to do it all in one year that's right it took me 10 years to to really lay out and the way i really wanted it I do a little bit what I could afford. Some years I didn't do anything. Some years I did more. Um, so, you know, lay out like you said, lay out that plan, and then you just you you walk through it. You may do a road, you know, road work one year. You may skip a year. You may you know increase my food plots. You may do some other things, but knowing your property, whether you're leasing it, owning it, knowing where you're at, knowing your property, that's where it starts. And knowing and, and being aware of what's going on around you too, because what your neighbor does could influence that, that could that could influence your timeline or what you do, uh, because what they do is going to impact when you start looking beyond your property lines, uh, it's gonna impact your plan. I think it's been a good one. I really do. Appreciate you uh tuning in and listening and, and uh But this has been fun and, and our look, we wanna bring you some good relevant information. And, and a lot of these topics around management and hunting, you, you can get that same topic from several places, but we're trying to bring you a little bit different side of it. And maybe a little twist that you probably wouldn't hear somewhere else is, is really our, our goal is, is how can we talk about the same topics, but maybe a little, a little different yeah, perspective. And I think the value of these things we're talking about, you guys have done it. And most of what you're doing, you tried it a different way first so that the that perspective is invaluable and i mean that's what we're here for all right y'all have a good week we'll catch you next time on the woodsman perspective